Welcome to Disruption Now. I'm your host and moderator, Rob Richardson. It's an honor to have Derek Artis with us. He's going to explain private equity and break it down so we can learn more about it. Derek, good to have you on, man. Thanks, Rob. Pleasure to be with you. Hey, man. So I want to talk a little bit about private equity and then get a little, little bit into your background. But tell folks, like, why private equity? What is private equity and why people should explore it? That's a good question, Rob, and I, it's funny because I hadn't even heard of private equity until Mitt Romney ran Mitt for Romney. president. Yeah, <laughs> when he ran for president. Well, something good came out of that campaign for him. Part of his campaign spiel was that he was a great businessman, and he yes. built all of these businesses through private equity, and that was sort of you know why we should have voted for Mitt Romney back then. But uh, yeah, quite honestly, I wouldn't say that private equity builds businesses, but private equity finds businesses that are on a nice upward trajectory, yeah. invest in those businesses, grow them, accelerate the growth, and then they exit and sell the business. So they're not really building a business organically from the ground up. They find things that are already working, invest other people's money, accelerate. And so just in a nutshell. Best way to invest, other people's money. Go other ahead. people's money. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm not saying, I think it's a, a, a really good financial strategy. It, it works. You'd be surprised. Yeah, about 8,000 companies across America today are not owned by the founders. They're not, they're not public. They're owned by a private F or equity company who, who owns it and then exits. And so uh, what private equity equity companies do, Rob, is they take money from pension funds or endowments from very large universities, take that money, identify companies that are on an upward trajectory, buy them, they, br they bring in technology, they typically will get rid of the waste in that company, people that aren't performing, and then they exit. And when they sell, they sell it for a nice, what we call multiple of their, of their purchasing price. And, and why it's important to us as African Americans is that um, when private equity companies buy an organization, they're looking for good talent, like people in finance, accounting, sales, marketing, operations. And in my 10 years, I've dealt with about 10 to 12 big private equity companies. I've only met one other black person in the world. So in, wait, in, in, so in, all in your experience, you, you saw only one other black person, One period. other black person, period. Wow. And, and why it's important is that it's lucrative, extremely lucrative. I came from Johnson & Johnson. I was on the, you know, corporate track, doing very well as an executive at Johnson & Johnson. Had I stayed at Johnson & Johnson, I'd probably still be working today. Yeah. But moving into We probably wouldn't be having the view we have right now, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is not a Johnson & Johnson view, yeah, but go ahead. Not, not at all. And, and Johnson & Johnson and corporations, you can do well in corporate yeah, America, yeah. okay? But what private equity does, people who get involved with private equ equity companies are able to realize um, a tremendous value. And, and uh, if you own a piece of the private equity company, when, you, when they exit, you can do well. And so I, I just think it's an opportunity that we need to expose more of us to, because I didn't know about it, and I had been in corporate America for How did you learn about years. it? The company that uh, I uh, worked Besides for Mitt Romney, okay. Mitt yeah, Romney, I, you heard I, Mitt Romney say, like, yeah, yeah, yeah I'll build yeah, a business. Yeah. But how did you how did I learn get, about how, it? how did you get in front of yeah. it, I guess? Like, you learned, like, that sounds interesting, but how in the world did you get in front of it? What was the opportunity? How did it present itself? God and luck, quite honestly. That's always a part of it. God. Hey. But, uh, yeah, I was, um, I'm an optometrist by training, Rob, uh, but I left practice, went back to doing MBA, and 
and uh, found myself in the eye care industry working for Johnson & Johnson. Uh, they own the AccuView brand, AccuView Contacts. You yeah, sure. I, I have some AccuView Contacts, okay, yeah. actually. I'm not, clearly, I'm not wearing them right now. But exactly. Yes. <laughs> me either. Me either, Rob. But uh, I, w- I was medical director for uh, Johnson & Johnson for about five years. And one of the companies that we did business with was a company out of Texas called Vision Source. Okay. And Vision Source at that time had about 1,600 franchises, eye care franchises around the U.S. Okay. And uh, they approached me about joining the management team, leaving Johnson & Johnson. And part of me coming on board was they gave me some uh, equity in Vision Source. Okay? But at that time, I knew nothing. It wasn't private equity. Owned. It was a right. private company owned by a handful of doctors. They oh, got that the, is some fortune. Yeah, it was a great fortune. But also, you, you, there was some risk. You, you know, when you leave a Johnson & Johnson sure. and take a risk on a smaller company, it, it's some risk. But if you looked at the trajectory of that company, So how'd you take that risk? Because I want people to, they, I think many are paralyzed by the fear they may see. They're like, you know, I am comfortable here. I know I have a predictable path, which we can argue that because I don't think anything's predictable nowadays. That's neither here nor there. But I know what's in front of me. I understand this. To go out and do something that may not may not work out. How did you take that leap? How did you how did you make that leap of faith in your mind? That's a great question, Rob. And I I would say, you know, part of, um, you know, my DNA is, I, you know, I'm always looking to, you know, to, to see new opportunities, looking for new opportunities, right? right. And if you're an entrepreneur, I'm, I'm, I, was, I was wired to, to look for new opportunities. Uh, and so my parents told me to always look at opportunities and understand your industry. And so I was an optometrist practicing in Washington, D.C. for 10 years. Right. Most of the time as an optometrist, you think you're going to practice in this community and build your practice for 30, 40 sure. years and retire. But... Um, I, I, I had a, uh, a mentor in optometry school that said, dude, when you go into practice, you can make a good living being a doctor day to day, but be involved in the bigger part of your profession. Understand what's happening in your industry. Just don't go into your office every day and bury your head in the sand. Right. Right. So he taught me early out of school to try to get involved in looking at the entire industry, not just my, my four doors. And so over, over uh, the first 10 years of practicing optometry, it became apparent to me that our industry was changing and that uh, it was going to be bigger than a guy or girl having their own office. And I needed right. to look at things outside of my practice. And so when opportunities arose for me to move out of practice and move, in, move into a company called Four Eyes that was located here in Miami, right. uh, I looked at it. And it was a big risk. Do I leave a practice that we built for 10 years and go to work for Four Eyes? So you've done this more than once. Oh, yeah. You've been taking leaps for a while. Well, you you know, you got to. I mean, and today, and particularly in today's society, it's so much different than when I started 30 years ago. You know, kids come out of school. Now, everybody changes jobs three, four, five times, right? I tell people the biggest risk you can can take is not to take any risks. Absolutely. No question about it, Rob. No question. So I left practice, sold my practice. Went to Four Eyes and then joined the management team and then eventually uh, J and J recruited me. But but again, it was a big leap moving from a J and J to a small company. I right. just started looking at the numbers. I looked at the small company. I was able to get equity in the company, right. an owner. It was a small you know small small ownership. But if you see a company going on that kind of trajectory, growing like that, right. there's a good chance they're going to continue to do well. You, you do your diligence, meet the leaders, the managers in the company, make sure that you're aligned with them. And to me, looking back in hindsight, it really w- wasn't a risk. Right. It was more risky, like you said, staying put. Yeah, yeah. Right? When you, when you look at a company and the numbers look good, the business they're in looks good, and then the leadership looks good. Right. 
you'd be a fool not to look at it, right? Business look, the business looks good, the numbers look good, and, and the, the leadership, leadership looks good. Those are the three components. Yeah. The, the leadership's key. Yeah. The leadership's key. And we'll get back to that later on. Because I want to know, know what you evaluate in leadership. Like, what is leadership to you? you know, we can get back to that now or talk about it. Let's do it now. Let's, let's do, do it now. now. So what, what, do, you, what do you think? Story. Yeah. Because mind you, I'm from Washington, D.C. I'm a, I'm a brother born in, in Chocolate City. All right. Okay? This company was located in Houston, Texas. Okay. The owners were... Four or five cowboys, white cowboys from I, Texas. I, think, I figured they were white. Okay. But. <laughs> all, all white. Okay. There's some black cowboys, though. No, but these were all white guys in the deep south, red state of Texas. All righty. Okay. Now, I'll be honest. There were quite a few of my friends in my industry who said, wait a minute, dude. Are you nuts? Yeah. You're going to leave Johnson Johnson, a global world team, uh, to go work for a bunch of cowboys in Texas. I'm sure you probably thought you were nuts for some time, too. You know, not really. I'll <laughs> not, tell you why. Not at all? Okay. I'll tell you why. I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a born-again Christian. Okay. I believe Christ, I do Christ too. is we my Savior. Yep. And uh, when I met with the owner, the founder of the company, um, the company was founded on, on Christ and Christian principles. Okay. And so we connected on that level. Yeah. Right? And even though I, I was going into a company that was 95% uh, Caucasian, right? Uh, I, I got to meet those people and develop strong relationships with those people, and and relationships are, are a key component. I tell people there's nothing stronger than a relationship. Oh, you know, right. yeah. learning to monetize. And I mean, you first have to build a relationship before you can monetize because the trust is built. But how did you know? Like, so what? What developed? Okay, so you were both Christians. Both Christians. But I tell people, you know, this is a quote from Robert Greene, and it's true. You know, people can call themselves loving Christians. Yeah be progressive and have the heart of tyrants. So how did you, how did you really go through and analyze their character? How did you know beyond having that connection that this was an authentic conversation and and really evaluate the leadership there? Like, I, you know, I love, I love this podcast because it it helps me. And we can bounce around a little bit because, you know, even as a Christian, and I'll be honest, as as a black American Christian today, a lot of my white American Christians. Oh, it's difficult. That are tolerating the leadership coming out of that White House today is concerning. And I, and yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I and, I to, and I've had to question some of those relationships that I have with these people. Um, but I will tell you, it took time too. I knew some of these people more than you know a couple of years, and I got to know them. Right. Uh, and uh, and I'll be honest, man, the, these people, all white. All, you know, uh, I would say Republican right wing people, yeah. they did right by me. And uh, you know what I found with a lot of uh, I found and this is probably controversial, but I'm saying anyway, I found doing business. If you do business with uh, some Republicans, a lot of times if they relate to your relationship level, you know, you get a better business opportunity versus some of some of, some of my Democratic friends are like, you know, you know, well, we want to be progressive, but we don't see you as a business owner. Right. I mean, it's kind of interesting that kind of tension that plays itself out. I've seen that play out in my personal relationships. I've seen some of my I'm talking some of my white liberal friends that say, you know, they got your back. Oh, we want you to run for office. But when it comes down to actually supporting you in a financial way, it's not the same. And they have the means too, right? They both have the means, but I think it's the different perspective. So I, I've seen it play out in different ways. You know, I, I like to say some pro- uh, racism is not exclusive to the, to any one party. You know, Democrats have it too. And I think, you know, with the progressive side, there's this paternalistic racism. It's like, yes, we want to help you, but only so much. <laughs> right? Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. I mean, like, Absolutely. I've, at least Absolutely. I've seen that play out. Yeah, yeah. And then to close the loop, I, I totally agree with you. You know, one, I knew these people. Uh, we definitely had the same firm foundation in the Lord. But the more importantly, the mission of the organization 
I was totally aligned with the mission. I was an optometrist. It was about uh, perpetuation of the, the profession. Right. And they, was, they, was, they believed and stuck to the mission. Yeah. So yeah, I took a leave of faith, and then God bless. And, and what happened after, in 2008, when I joined the organization, yeah. um, about two years later, uh, a private equity company uh, came on board and acquired us. Uh, and when they acquired us, and we'll talk to, 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 to what private equity does. But when they acquired us, um, their goal was to hold us for three to five years and eventually sell us to a company in our industry or right. take us public. Sure. Right? And uh, if it's okay, this is a good segue into what PE does. Sure. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So essentially what they do, whether it's in my industry or any industries, the PE firm will come in and they'll, they'll, they'll acquire a controlling interest at least 50, 51% of the company. Okay. Right? And then they'll, they'll, sick, they'll, they'll bring in people who have an expertise in the industry right. to take that company to the next level. So I think we had at that time maybe 1,700 or 1,800 uh, doors across the United States. Right. But in three years, we were up to 3,300. And, wow. and it took us 20, it had taken the company 25 years to get 1,800 doors. Wow. In four years, it, they doubled, almost doubled it. Wow. Right? And that's what, so private equity brought in a, a leader who had done it before in healthcare, right. who ran a big healthcare company. They, they cleaned out our, a lot of our leadership, the ones that were not real, real effective. They moved them, moved them out. Uh, I was actually promoted during that period of time, so it worked out well for me. I was elevated to the chief operating officer, and then uh, we just drove the business. And in, right. fi and, uh, in five years, we were all able to sell. Um, as And this is why I would say to my, my, my friends that are you know, um, executives, whether you're in sales, finance, operations, if you get into a private equity company, Ask for equity, right? <laughs> right. You can ask, ask, for, ask equity. for equity, right? Now, it reminds me of what, uh, you know, Beyonce did. So she's, she's obviously learning this. Uber asked her to perform and be like a sponsor, and they were, they were going to pay her $6 million. Right. She said, pay me in equity. There you go. <laughs> and she's just worth $300 million oh, right now. $300 million. Six, $300 mm. Million. Mm. She has her math right on that. Mm. Mm. She's smart. She's smart. She's, yes, yes, she's a lot yeah, of things. Yeah, she's she's beautiful, over, too. Beautiful, smart, and she and Hova know what they're doing. Man. <laughs> there they no, do. No, no, no doubt. No doubt. No doubt. No, like that. But um, so, yeah, as for equity, if you get involved, they have an opportunity to work for a private equity-owned company. And, and even small pieces of equity yeah. can turn into millions of dollars in a big company. It really can. So how do we do that? Like How, 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 how will... How would more African-Americans or people in general get an opportunity for a private equity? Where, where do you find it? Where do you look? How do you, how do you even get involved in that yeah. industry? If you say you only found one other, one other black person, period, which is incredible, yeah. how do we find the opportunity? Where, yeah. where would you point folks to start looking? Well, the first thing I would do is, uh, because you'll find that private equity will own companies in a lot of industries, and your company you work for now might be owned by private equity, and you don't know it. Right. So I would... I would talk to the people at HR and find out, are we private equity on them? And they're not going to be looking for um, entry-level people. They'll be looking for people that are at a, you know, director, right. VP level, vice, sure. you know, person in, in operations or, or, or finance or marketing and sales. But nevertheless, find out if your company or where you are interviewing is owned by private equity. Right. I, mean, I, I would really look at that now. And, and that would make, a, make I mean, that, that would... That'll help you identify it. I don't see private equity companies in general 
going out and develop, they don't develop a database of employees. They'll come into an industry. And they don't develop talent. It sounds like they're looking for somebody no, else to do it. They want talented people. Right. But they'll pay for the talent. That's the key. Right. Right. They want talented people. So they'll come into an industry and they'll go to, you know, headhunters in an industry and LinkedIn and those kind of places to help find, you know. What do you think set people. you up to be recruited by that, I guess, small firm that turned into a private equity? What was it, was it just your knowledge purely, or was it partly your relationships and your development of those relationships? Another good question. I mean, I was, um, I was an optometrist, and I know how to take care of patients. I knew right. how to do that very well. And most clinicians know how to, we're trained to do that, whether you're a physician, dentist, optometrist. But we're not trained in business. No. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, after about 10 years of practice, I realized that you, you don't know what you don't know. Right. Right. You think, you know, because you've gone to school all these years to become this professional. But most of us, whether you're an artist, whether you're a physician, accountant, lawyer, whatever, you have a we have a skill. Right. But the making turning that skill into a business, most of us aren't trained in that. Right. And so I, I, I recognized after about 10 years of practice that I, I needed to know more. So I went back and did an MBA. And doing the MBA uh, taught me a lot, but it also opened a lot of doors for me, right, in, within the industry. So, and it also right. separated me from the masses. A regular optometrist couldn't go to J&J &J and say, hey, I want to be an executive there. Because we don't have that right. background. Right? So, so learning how to distinguish yourself from the rest of the market is really key, okay. sounds like. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. And, I, and I said, I don't care what you do. I don't care if you're a musician or artist. If you don't know the business, find somebody that does know the business. It'll right. make a huge difference in your success, yeah. Now, I know you're, you're, you're now, now you have, I guess, a little more opportunity to do your legacy and other projects that you really want to do. And you have a book coming up, right? Yeah. And yeah. talk about the book and, and, and what that's about. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. I've been actually working on it for about four years and it's probably still a year away. But uh, the book is called um, Daddy, the Tear Gas is Burning My Eyes. And um, it's, it's, it, it's a story of... Um, yeah, of the, I would say, um, the advancement, assimilation, and evolution of African Americans post the assassination of Dr. King in 1968. Wow. Right? It really, it really looks at, you know, life as a as an African American coming to age post 1968. And why 1968 and the riots were critical? You know, it, it starts with myself as a kid who. Um, my dad were out on the streets, and, and, and I was exposed to tear gas at five. Right. And, uh, oh, wow. You were exposed oh, to tear gas at yeah, five? Yeah, as a five years old, we were driving down the street, and uh, the, I, was, I grew up in Washington, D.C., and this was right after, you know, Dr. King's assassination. I was five. And I said, Daddy, get me home, get me home. And long story short, that, the, you know, over the next 50 years, after that, that day was critical because right well, after let's, then, let's talk about that day a little bit. Yeah. And, since you were five, most people don't remember that much oh, when they were five. You, if but you have tear, tear gas in your I'm sure you five, do. Yeah, it has, a way of, it has a way of jogging memories, <laughs> I'm sure. It leaves an indelible impression. I'm sure it's one of your first memories yeah, you had. Yeah. Talk about what you were feeling at that moment and what you were processing, because I'm sure you didn't have full appreciation for who Dr. Martin Luther King was at five, but what did you feel in that moment? Like, what was it like? Yeah. As yeah, best as you can yeah. remember when you were five. Yeah, I, I, I can remember vividly... Um, you know, the, the buildings are just being burnt up in the community, right? right? And we're driving down the streets and this tear gas is hitting us. And I'm like, Dad, why is this happening? Right? And he's, well, you know, Dr. King died and he was our leader. And uh, he, says, he says to me, you know, some people don't see, 
you know, you're right as an African-American young man. They don't see, you know, you know, your right to exist and have the same privileges as everybody else growing up. And, you right. need, and it was sort of for me, you know, at, at that age, an eye-opener. You're five years old. You don't think about yeah. politics. No, you stuff, don't. Right? Yeah. But unfortunately, being black, and this is still yeah. true, it's conversations you got to have with your have. kids that you hope you wouldn't have to have. Like, we still got to have the same conversation about police. Yeah. Like, you, you can have white friends, and, but your experience is not going to be the same. And you can't act like your white friends do with police. Different. It's, exactly. a diff- it's a different reality for different you. Reality. And I wish it wasn't. But it is. But it is, right? And it it's, is. Not, it's unfortunate you have to learn it through tear gas yep. and, and riots. Yeah. But it's, I think but, that's an important lesson. But the book talks about the good news that came after that, right? Okay. The, the good news is right during, they call it the, uh, I think they call it the Holy, Holy Week when Dr. King was born, I mean, killed, excuse me, um, Lyndon Johnson passed the Civil Rights Act of 1968. Yep. And, and that was the, the sort of the, the third wing to the Civil Rights Act, excuse me. And for the, if you think about it, from 68 until now, 50 years later, um, it created an environment that was probably the most advantageous time to be a, a, an African-American in the history of America. Because that the last 30 years, I mean, 50 years, what happened after that was affirmative action started coming into place. There was Fair Housing Act right. was passed, right? The, the Equal Employment Opportunity right. Commission launched. And so many of us, and, you, and you're a little younger than I, I'm 56 now, we grew up during a period of time where there were a lot of opportunities. Sure, there was, it was for minorities. 40, 40, yep, yep. Right? Uh, and in, in addition to that, though, and, and probably more important and relevant today to today is the tenor in America. The culture of America was at least some sensitivity to the racial injustices of the past. There was sensitivity to that, right? So companies would start to, you know, mandate or hire sure. African-American employees. And there, there, were, there were mandates for construction contracts. There exactly. were mandates in cities. There were opportunities, and the door was open. My mom talked about the door being open. you got to walk through it when it's open. Exactly. I wonder what you think, though. I want, I want to get back to that, but I'd like to, I like to challenge that perspective yeah. just, just a little bit. Not from the fact that there were more opportunities given by America, because I think that's indisputable. I wonder what you think in African-Americans not realizing their own collective power and not investing in their own neighborhoods, not being entrepreneurs because of the, you know, the white man's ice is cooler thing. So because we have been so oppressed for so long. So when we got an opportunity to go across town, it's like, you know, I still remember the Jefferson style moving on up. Right. I'm getting out of this place, going to another place. Like where we were wasn't great, and we did, and it wasn't as good necessarily economically. But we still have more power collectively. I do think something was lost in, in the fact that we don't, we didn't invest. We take those opportunities and invest in our neighborhoods, invest in our communities, invest in our businesses. We thought that everything had to be nothing wrong with going corporations, but everything had to be that in order to have success. And that's that's not as you see that's not sustainable because now. You know, there's obviously been a backlash. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, you, you're right on point. And that's one of the things that comes out in the book. Right. Is that because there were opportunities for us to advance in America and corporate structure and so forth, it diluted our collective resources. Right. right? Because by, our choice, by, by our, our choice, by our choice, by our choice, know, yeah. our, our collective resources were spent in our communities. Right. right. That's the only, where we, only place we could spend them. Right. And so as we advance as a culture, and that's one of the things we ask in the book, are we better off? Yeah. Because we did dilute a lot of our collective resources because many of us, you know, went on and worked across the country, did different things and, and, and grew their careers, but then pulled that some of those dollars out of our out of our community and, and then and then bought into the belief that we weren't as good as other businesses that's absolutely that, that's 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 one of the keys like 
Absolutely. Believing that lie that's been passed down, the, the whole psychology around the racism and the whole social construct, it affects not only white people, it affects black people too. God, yeah. Probably, uh, probably even more. Yes. You know, and, and so uh, over the, the 50 years, but, but I think it, it's important, particularly for young kids, to understand that um, really that year with the culmination of Dr. King's death, uh, immediately, Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act of 68, right? Yes. And that pushed in fair housing. And for the next 50 years, the tenor of the country was really about at least having some sense of uh, sensitivity to racial injustice right. and giving you know minorities opportunity. But now we're here 50 years later. The tenor's changed dramatically. Well, it is. But I believe I believe the pivot started in the 80s. It, it, but, it, but, it, but but it wasn't a transformational pivot. I think right. the right. the rhetoric started there, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. The rhetoric started yeah. there, and it built and it built and it built, and now we got to the point where that that. That backlash. Every, we know for, for that progress, there was a whole, the Southern strategy was used to build up racial angst, right? Yeah. Which brings us to where we are now, right? And, and that's, that's reached a crescendo. Absolutely. Where and do you think we go from here? Ooh, that's a great question. Here's what I, you know, I still believe in America, right? And uh, I still believe uh, this experiment of America will survive. It's being tested. The it's Constitution being, is being, being tested. tested. It's being stress tested. I still believe there are more good people in America who believe in uh, what we stand for yeah. than the others. But it's, it's, it's a serious question, and we address it in the book, and I'm glad you asked it because what, what happens in the book is the kid grows up, he goes up, and myself, it personally, it looks a lot at, at my life, but eventually develops relationships all over the country with deep relationships with people in all 50 states right. that are white. Yeah. All right. Okay. And I developed these relationships, and they're deep. I've stayed in people's homes in Nebraska and and in Oklahoma, and we're friends, and we bonded. Right. Right. But when that Trump administration started, and the, many of those same people I'm telling you, we had these deep relationships with. Yeah. You know, tolerated or or, or complicit in, in in his in his behavior over the last couple of years. I had to question those relationships. Yeah, of course. And 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 in the book, now I'm at this point, I'm at the point of going. I didn't talk to as many of those people for about a year, year and a half, right? right. Just because out of frustration. But I've I've gone back and visited with ten of them personally, sat down one on one, and asked them. You know. Uh, they they all tell you that we're good friends, right? Right, and they they love me, and I love them. We're family. Our families are attached. Sure. But I ask them, well, when you hear Trump come out with some of his racist rhetoric, do you think about how that makes me feel as your friend? And and so I've it, towards the end of the book, we get into some deep personal discussions with people because. Um, and it goes to your initial question, how's this, how's this going to turn out? I will tell you, the early read of the people I've visited with, Rob, it's been interesting. There are three camps. There's one camp that says, dude, Derek, I never really thought about how, you know, Trump and his rhetoric and this whole uh, right. impact you. But you're so close to a friend of mine. Hell, it means that much to you. I'd vote for Nancy Pelosi next time. <laughs> no, really. That, that's, I mean, a, that's a ride or die. I've wow. You go from Trump to Nancy Pelosi. Yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's like, a hell of a thing. Yeah, Damn. I, I mean, these are, all, these are all Caucasian good friends of mine. And a third of uh, one camp said, hey, dude, I, I didn't really think about it that way. I was just looking at my pocketbook. It made right. sense. Dude, if it means that much to you and our friendship, I get it. 
The second, the middle group would say to you, I hate what he does. I hate his, his language. I hate what he stands for. I even, these are white people. I even believe he's racist. Yep. But I like the tax cuts and I like the judges. I like the judges comes first. Yep. <laughs> and I like the tax cut. Yep. And I've the, heard this too. Yeah. So in the third group. Well, what's the third? The, the third group is they are so, <laughs> they're so, they don't see any of them. They're indoctrinated. They're, they're they, drinking they, all the Kool-Aid. Yeah. They're just sipping it as they go along. I, I don't see it. I don't see any of that as racism. Now, at the end of the day. Like, how can you say, just because he said he doesn't like black people, it's not racist. <laughs> right, like, right, right. He's just saying he doesn't like black people. That's not racist. Yeah. Like, uh, he just calls he just calls Mexicans yeah, rapists. That's yeah. not racist. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, yeah. And I looked him dead in the eye, and I'll, I'll give him direct quotes. And, and they're just so far gone, right? Yeah. And and they still want to they still want to revive our relationship. Yeah. But I have a hard time with that, to be quite honest, right? So so so, but, so to you ask answer your question, how is this going to end? I think there are enough people in that first group and second group that at this next election will not pull the trigger for Trump. And let's get back to. The yeah, I, I look, I hope so. I, I think it comes down to getting enough people who are indifferent off off of their indifference and getting them involved. But because I can't tell, I mean, because the, he's such a transactional person, not that I want to spend a lot of time on him, but he's such a transactional person that I think as long as the economy is stable, which, of course, he dropped 800 points yesterday. So as soon as the economy, as soon as the economy gets a little bit weak, I think he's going to I think he'll totally implode. Oh, he will. Yeah, Absolutely. but the, he, he's, he's benefiting from the tail end of an economic expansion, so we'll have to see what happens, because I do think he, he inspires a transactional loyalty, but not a permanent loyalty. But we will see. I mean, look, I, there's things that's happened that I predicted wrong, so throw all that out, I could be completely wrong. We can see. <laughs> we can see. You know, uh, final questions here. I have two more. <clears throat> you have a committee of three, living or dead. Hell, it can be fantasy character. It doesn't matter. Okay. They're your advisors. Pick three. Who are they and why? Wow, that's a great question. Um, well, I, I would definitely ask Dr. King. All right. right. Just, uh, yeah, just, uh, and I don't even think it'd be, it, it, it needs an explanation. It's funny. I, I um, had the pleasure of going to uh, three bar mitzvahs in my life. Have you ever been to a bar mitzvah? I haven't. Okay. I think we ought to have black bar mitzvahs and Trey, and because that's really what. It's actually Jewish. a good idea to have a black no, bar mitzvah. You're phenomenal. right, like I mean, a, a, a rite of passage. I kind of did that with a, my son actually in some ways. Yeah, it's a rite of passage, but it, but it's an intense period that they go through where they really learn their 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 history, their faith. They learn how to be financially responsible. It is really. But oh wow! And they have to, and the kid has to stand in front of their whole church and the family, and basically answer your question that you asked, right? Name three people that they respect and why. And each bar mitzvah, I've been to three, I've been to, Martin Luther King has been one of their three kids. And these are all Jewish white kids, right? So wow. I, mean, I mean, that's kind of power this guy. Wow. He's, you know, and anyway. So yeah, definitely Dr. King, I, I would say, uh, I'm a Christian, so I, w I would have Jesus Christ, okay. right? Um, and, and You get a chance to meet Jesus, what you ask? Um, wow, I would ask Jesus, Why? You know, why did you die for our sins, right? Why, why did you do what you did? You didn't have to. You're son of God. You could have it all. Yeah. So I would probably ask him that. Um, and then the third person would, uh, no, I'm a historian. I, 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 I would ask Barack. I'm a big Barack fan. Yeah. You know, um, I just think he's transformational. 
um, and um, and brilliant. That he is. That he is. Final question. So you have a billboard, Google ad, whatever you want to call it, that displays your belief or saying. What does it say and why? Um, in some way, I would just say give give your best. Give it all. Give your best. You know, I, I, and why is because I think we have one chance to live on this earth. And if you give your best, you, 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 you're going to maximize your chance. I'm big on maximizing opportunities in life and work with a lot of kids. And it's just sometimes hard to get them to give their best. And when I say give your best, leave it on the field. Hey, that's a good one. Derek Artis. Hey, hey pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. Have you on. We'd love to have you on again in the future. My pleasure. Thank you, guys.